And we've been dedicating our uh, time uh, in our uh, public preaching uh, series uh, to this endeavor, to find out if we are truly, here at Village Bible Church, a healthy and vibrant church, a church that uh, is moving in such a way that will give God all the glory and honor through the things that we do. And each of these, we're learning that uh, they're not easy. Um, They're going to take some effort. A healthy church isn't healthy just by us showing up and uh, believing that uh, God will make everything all wonderful. We've got to work hard with regards to these things, and today we deal with one of the, the harder marks, if you will, of what a healthy church is all about. It's something that goes against our culture, something that goes against popular opinion, something that even if you've been in the church for some time, uh, you might even grimace or squirm at, at the mention of our, of our mark this morning of church discipline. And it's something that uh, healthy churches will do because healthy churches do the hard things. Whether it's in our personal nutrition or in our personal exercise regiments or, or with regards to our studies in school, we recognize that we want to see healthy outcomes. It's going to involve at times doing things that go against Maybe our nature. Some of us are trying to watch our, our waistlines, and we have to have the discipline to, to push away those sweet, uh, succulent dishes that are in front of us, uh, hoping that uh, by doing the hard things, good outcomes will take place. Some of you are going to get up early in the morning tomorrow, and you're going to go out running. You're going to go to the health club and do some exercise. And you can think of a myriad of reasons why you shouldn't do that. But you recognize, if I do that, I'm indisciplined to do those hard things, healthy outcomes will take place. Some of our students right now find themselves studying and working hard, and you do so knowing if I work really hard at studying the material that the teachers that I have give me, that hopefully a healthy outcome will take place in the result of good grades. Healthy people do the hard things, and likewise, healthy churches do the hard things, and not just do the hard things, but do them well. And today we talk on a subject matter of church discipline that isn't easy. It's one of the hardest things a church will do, but every good and healthy church will do these things because God's Word speaks about it and because it commands us to do so. Uh, When asked uh, the Reformers, Calvin and and Martin Luther, of what a healthy church looked like, they talked about the biblical preaching of God's Word, the proper administration of of the Lord's Supper and, and baptism, and the third rail, if you will, of a healthy church, they said, was the ongoing discipline within the church. And yet, sadly, while the Scriptures speak about it, while even our Lord and Savior speaks to the subject of church discipline, many churches in our culture today have pushed away this healthy mark. They've done so, and we're going to learn a couple reasons why, but they've done so, I think, because we aren't serious about taking God at His Word, that when God says the way you build a healthy church is going to involve at times the hard things, the things that go against our culture, And we need to ask this morning, are we willing to do that as a church? I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. And we're going to try to explore what the Scripture says about this subject matter because Village Bible Church wholeheartedly affirms the role that church discipline plays in the life of of us as a church. And we're not going to push away from it. We're not going to be ashamed of it. But we want to tell you why we believe that church discipline is important, how you can be a part of it, 
and the spirit and the love that needs to be shown through the process. And so we're going to look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and turn to page 823. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word as we get into our text this morning. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples with regard to this subject, this healthy mark of church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the right to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians for a moment. If you have a pew Bible, turn to page 954. Page 954. The Apostle Paul speaks to a church specifically with regards to this issue of church discipline that helps remind us a little bit as to why we do that. And I want to use that as a text this morning as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it begins with this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I am already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens... um, The whole lump, cleanse out of the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But what I'm writing to you is not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what I have, for what I have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not the inside of the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. Father God, we come before a gauntlet of Scripture this morning. Ones that is hard to wrap our mind around, to understand fully the ramifications of it, and yet you have plainly spoken today that your church is to be a pure church. Your church is to be a place that takes sin seriously, That your church is to be a place of accountability and care, reaching out to those who have found themselves wandering away from the truth. 
while, Lord, we leave the judgment of the world uh, to you as the good and true judge, you have commissioned us, your people, to judge one another. And so, Lord, within your house, we ask that judgment would come upon this place, that it would be done in gentleness and love, with mercy and forgiveness abounding, and yet truth being the standard by which we stand. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless the time in your word, the reading and hearing of it, and, of course, the preaching of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we walk through this difficult subject matter of how healthy churches do the hard things, we come to this subject matter that is so alien, if you will, to our life and times within the church. The idea of church discipline is foreign to many evangelical churches today, and and, and so why in the world would we do it? Well, as we approach this issue of church discipline, right away in our outlines we see we've got a problem uh, with this subject. There's a, there's a problem that needs to be addressed. So why does the Bible talk about church discipline? The easy answer is sin. Write that down in your outlines today. If you don't know this, let me, let me just share something that is of great importance to you as a human being. You are a sinner, and I am a sinner, in need of God's grace. We are apart from God. We are rebels against God and His Word. We rebel not only against God, but God's given authorities in our lives. We live as selfish and self-centered lives because it's all about us and it's not about anybody else. And as a result of that, because we have lived these lives of sin, God has placed within His Word a provision that will keep us from going off the right path. As parents, and I know I'm speaking to a group of perfect parents with perfect children, but in the Badal family where we're not so perfect, discipline is a mechanism where a loving mother and father declare to their children the way they ought to go, and when they choose and rebel against that right way, God has given the parents in that home the right to discipline their children so that they will be corrected in their wrong, wrong beliefs and understandings of how they ought to live, that their self-centeredness and, and, and selfish ways would be brought into check so that they would live productive lives. Church discipline is the role that the church plays, both, if you will, the leadership of the church, but also the church, meaning you with one another, disciplining one another, that is, uh, correcting one another towards righteousness and truth. Now, for that to take place, we need to recognize that in doing such a thing, not only is sin going to be our enemy in this process, but so is society. Society wants nothing to do with this. Not only the society of a sinful world, but even within uh, church society, one of the reasons why churches don't do it is because they're afraid of this subject matter. These things are too hard. They go against culture. They will cause for people to uh, grimace and groan as a result of this. Here's what Albert Moeller says about it. The decline of church discipline may be the most visible failure of the contemporary church. No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession and lifestyle, the church today sees itself as a voluntary association of members with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to one another. And that's important that we recognize that this morning. That we recognize that as a society, we're going to push this issue of church discipline away. That it's going to seem odd that we would even spend a sermon talking about such 
subject matter, let alone do it. But why is it as a society, and even as Christians, why do we despise this thing called church discipline? I'm going to give you five very quick reasons why I think that takes place. Number one, uh, we are individualistic by nature here in America. Phrases like, don't tread on me, Uh, I am my own person. You know, we as Americans are revolutionaries by nature. And while this may ring true in politics, it cannot ring true in the Christian walk. God has not led us to be Christians all by ourselves. He's not given us the job of being Lone Ranger Christians. We have been called to be arm-in-arm with one another as members of one body, loving one another and spurring one another on towards loving good deeds, even if that means we need to be corrected at times if we're wandering away from the truth. The second reason why I think church discipline isn't done is because of the consumer-driven model of ministry. In the 21st century, it seems that churches have bought into this idea that you, the parishioner, are the customer. And so what the church's job is to do is to make sure at all costs that you are uh, comfortable, that you have what you are looking for, and we're trying to get you to like what we're doing. And I can assure you that in a market-driven, uh, parishioner-centered congregation, church discipline's the last thing that any church is going to do. Who am I to tell you, or who are you to tell me what to do? If the customer is always right, why would we ever say that you're wrong? Secondly, or thirdly, I'm sorry, there's ignorance to this practice. That is, you just, maybe it's the first time you've ever heard of this term, church discipline. And maybe you've never read some of the passages that have been read this morning or will be read this morning that speak about this. And hopefully through teaching like this and through the pamphlet that you were given, you can do some additional study with regards to why a place like Village Bible Church would devote so much time and attention to this mark that we believe will make us healthy, this mark of church discipline. Fourthly, One of the reasons why we may not do it is we misuse the words of Jesus when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged yourself. And right away we say, okay, the role of the Christian is not to judge anybody. And we don't have that right to speak in because Jesus said we shouldn't judge. Well, that's a misinterpretation of what Jesus says. What Jesus is saying is when we judge one another, we need to judge one another fully recognizing a couple things. Number one, that we ourselves are sinners. Jesus said this. When you see a speck in a brother's eye and you're going to point that speck out, recognize that there's a log in your eye. And so we need to recognize that when we do judge one another, that we are not judging from a place of perfection or holiness, but we ourselves have our own issues and our own frailties and our own faults that we need to be careful with. Notice in the scripture that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul tells us, That our job is not to judge the world. Leave that to God. But as members of this body, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called, we are expected to judge one another. But again, we should do so with gentleness and love and an understanding that we too are so prone to sin in our own lives. Finally, I think one of the reasons why church discipline uh, is given a bad name is because of some of the bad press that it gets. No doubt if you've been around a church for a while, you've heard horror stories where, where churches have, have uh, hurt individuals. They've shunned them in ways that are ungodly and unbiblical. Uh, if you've read any of our 
American classics, you've no doubt read books like uh, The Crucible that speaks of uh, the horrific acts surrounding the Salem witch trials and uh, people being burned at the stake, people being drowned because they're considered to be witches. Still other books like The Scarlet Letter, a woman that uh, is uh, caught to be in adultery because she's pregnant with child and, and the church's job of shunning her and pointing out her sin to the point that they affix a, a scarlet A to her chest, all the while knowing that one of the individuals who was involved in that unwanted pregnancy was the pastor himself. And so we read these things and say, what judgment, how dare them, and rightly so, because those examples are unbiblical examples of what church discipline is all about. And yet, amidst all of that, amidst even the fear of of legal ramifications that a church may have, that if you put someone under church discipline, they may come back and sue you uh, and all of that, for all those reasons, we could say, no, we should not do church discipline. And yet, I want you to know that church discipline is something that we here at Village Bible Church wholeheartedly and unashamedly do because it's what God demands. How, how do we know that? Notice the second point this morning. There is a policy that addresses the situation. If you're in a workplace or in a school or really in any organization, you will get a handbook of policies. And those policies will tell you how you ought to live, how you ought to do your job, and, and, and the framework by which things are going to be done. For believers, the handbook or policy uh, handbook is the Word of God. It tells us the guidelines and the framework by which we are to live our lives. And church discipline is one of the things that's spoken about in this book of policies, in this book that tells us how we ought to live. So there's a couple reasons why we practice church discipline. Number one, the holiness of God demands it. The holiness of God demands that. Write that in your outlines. You see, one of the things that we understand about God all throughout Scripture is that God is a holy God. That there's no sin in Him. He does not lie. There's no shadow. There's no uh, question of His purity. He is God, and there is none like Him. But here is the problem. This God who there is no one like, who sits in radiance in heaven, has saved a group of people unto himself called Christians, you and I. But the problem is you and I are still sinners. That just because our sins have been taken care of by the blood of Jesus on the cross, we still are going to live our lives as we have this week, failing God at living up to his standard. And as a result of that, we've got a problem. So what does God do? Does God say, okay, I know you're going to mess up. I know you guys are dirty, rotten scoundrels, so I'll just leave you be. No, twice in Scripture, the Bible makes it clear, once Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, and Peter says it in one of his letters, that you and I are to be holy as God our Father is holy. Now wait a minute. God, how can you expect that? Well, I want you to know that God expects it because we have Christ, the hope of glory within us, that we can live upright and holy lives. And if we couldn't, he wouldn't have written it in his word. So how is this God who is holy going to get a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels to a place of holiness theirself? The answer is in the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there for a moment, if not, you can just listen as I read it. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. In Hebrews chapter 12... 
verses 5 through 11, the scripture says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of our Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For our fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now listen to what he says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. It's not pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the scripture tells us that the way God is going to make us a holy people is he's going to discipline us. And every parent in this place fully recognizes that that's why we discipline our children. We do so not because we hate them, but because we love them. And here's the thing that I always tell my children. Do you want to be disciplined by a, a, a loving hand of a father or do you want to be handcuffed and taken away by the police? Someone's going to discipline you in this life. And would you rather have someone who's going to do it out of a heart's desire to grow you as men who will follow God and be good citizens and and be good within society? Or are you going to have the government come and not give a rip about who you are, incarcerate you, and force you to do the things that you're supposed to do? God says, I love you enough that I'm willing to discipline you to make you better individuals because of the work of my son on the cross. So the holiness of God demands it. Notice the scriptures declare it. We have numerous passages of scripture which both command and give us God's directive as to the how, why, when, and where of church discipline. Now, so we've got all these Bible verses. And and I want you to recognize the absolute absurdity of a church that does not practice church discipline how they're missing the mark. Why this is such an important thing. Because here's the thing. The Bible addresses it. Jesus himself declares that there is a moment in time where the church may have to speak to one of its own and say, you are rebuked in your life and the way you're living. You need to change. And if you don't, we may kick you out of this place. We may take away our public affirmation or approval that you are truly a follower of God. Now, when that happens, please hear me, it does not mean that we consign that person to hell. It does not mean we say that they can never fix it. What we're saying is the way you are living now is out of step with what God says a Christ follower is to be like. And so we no longer can call you a brother or sister in Christ because you continue to rebel against the ways of God. Now, here's the thing. If the Bible says that, don't we as Christ followers and people of the word have to respond to that? But here's the problem. Maybe one of the reasons why churches don't do it is because they see these scriptures regarding discipline as simply suggestions. That Jesus is saying, hey, here's an idea. You don't have to take it. It's just my humble thought. Maybe kick the guy out of church. 
But you don't have to do that. If you want to, it's an option, but you don't have to. And sometimes we take commands. I know I've done it. So why wouldn't churches do it? That we take commands of Scripture and we think that they're just mere suggestions. Another way that we can take it is that we can, we can say, you know what? We believe in church discipline. We believe in it. And yes, we will do it when we find an unrepentant sinner in our midst. There just aren't any. It's as if me telling you, you know, I'll discipline my kids, but my three boys are perfect. They get that. Noah, that is not true, right? We know that our children are going to make mistakes, and we know that, and that's why my children are disciplined. That's why you discipline your kids, right? Our kids are going to sin. They are going to rebel. And they need a loving mom and dad to do it. And a church to say, well, we'll do it when we have someone sin is as if saying to all of you, you're all good. I'm okay. You're okay. We'll address it when it comes. But right now, you guys are just living upright and holy lives. Great work. Here's what I've come to learn as a parent and as a father. A parent and father and a pastor. That is... We are so prone to self-deception. And we are so quick to say we are good when we are really not. And that's why we need the Scriptures to declare something. And so here's what we need to do. We need to recognize that if we are going to fail at church discipline, it is not because we see the Scriptures as suggestions or that there are no unrepentant, uh, no unrepentant believers in our midst. What it is is when churches... Don't practice discipline. It is because they are failing the Scriptures and the clear commands of our Savior for the sake of cultural relevance and popularity. Why don't you discipline your kids? Because you want to be your kid's friend, not their parents. Because you're more worried about relationship than you are about the soul of the child that's living in your home. Let me tell you something. It will always, always, always be unpopular by the world's opinion to discipline one another in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. So we have a decision to make. Here's the equation that I want you to remember. If God's holiness demands it, and Scripture declares it, that always, always, always means the church must do it. We've got to. We can't take Scripture and throw it out. We've got to do it. Now, why do we have to do it? We have to do it because if we don't, the church will lose all of its purity. In 1 Corinthians Sin was running amok. Apostle Paul said the church was completely carnal. Why? Because they were not dealing with sin. And it got really gross. What happened was, as Paul says, sins that the world would judge as being sinful, the church no longer was. That is, that the world was a purer place than the church was. So we've got to deal with sin for the church to remain pure. We have to deal with sin because we'll lose God's blessing if we don't. Joshua chapter 7 tells the story of uh, the battle of, uh, of Jericho. And, and the battle of Jericho has just been won. And in Joshua chapter 7, they come to a much smaller town, the town of, of Ai. And, and they go, and it's, it's smaller. The army is far weaker. And so it should be just a, an easy thing to take over now that they've taken over Jericho. And the nation of Israel takes on this little town. And they lose. And they lose badly. Men lose their lives. And Joshua, the general of God's people, says, what in the world went wrong? What happened? And God says simply, there's sin in the camp. Well, was everybody sinning? 
The Bible says it took one individual, Achan, who had stolen precious things from the city of of, uh, Jericho when he was commanded not to, and one individual, one man's sin, brought a lack of blessing to the entire nation. Why do we have to deal with one another's sin? Because one of our sins can keep us from the blessings of God corporately. That's how seriously God takes it. Notice it also is to be done because our testimony in the world matters. If we're going to be casual to sin and disobedience, all the while professing that we've got this relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, we will hinder the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and cease to be God's ambassadors, and we will become tools of the devil. Because we will send mixed messages to a world that needs to hear the gospel. And so we've got to deal with this. So how do we deal with it? Notice next the people and scenarios that it involves. The people and scenarios that it involves. Who receives church discipline? When should they receive it? The answer may surprise you, but church discipline is for you and me. That is, it's for all Christians. All of us, if we call ourselves children of God, are under the discipline of God. If he's our father, then at times he brings out the paddle. He brings out uh, the grounding, if you will, that will come, that will right us in the way that we go. How does he do that? The Bible says he uses other people. That he uses the church. You see, as Christians, we need to recognize that when we live for ourselves, there are consequences. That it isn't that we can do whatever we want and it doesn't, as long as it doesn't bother anybody. The Bible says when we're a part of this body, if the hand does something, the whole body's going to feel it. And so if you're a part of this body of believers, you're a hand, you're a foot, you're, you're an arm, you're a leg. You can't do anything in isolation and not have it impact the whole body. And so all Christians are under the discipline of God. And we need to recognize when we say the words that we are loved by God, that we are then announcing to the world that we readily welcome his discipline in our lives. But notice, it gets more specific than that. All Christians, but more specifically, those caught in sin. Those who are caught in sin. Galatians 6.1 says, if any of you are, are caught in sin, those who are spiritual should restore them and do it gently, and, and do it very carefully, not to fall to sin yourself. Now, Galatians 6.1 speaks to sins in general. No, no sin is mentioned. It's your average garden variety sin. And so there are going to be times and moments where you and I sin. We're going to treat our spouses wrongly. We're going to treat our children badly. We're going to cheat our way to a promotion. We are going to say words that are unbecoming of a believer. Our thought life and and, and the activities that we're a part of are going to be filled with all types of lust and malice and slander. And, and, And we're going to fall into those things. And the idea here is not per se a premeditated thing that we said, you know what, hell or high water, I'm going to go do this. I don't care who it involves. No, we are prone to wander, the hymn says, prone to leave the God we love. And the idea here is that we're going to fall into a trap. And so you're walking along and you see Brother Tim on the ground. He's been caught into one of the devil's traps and my leg's caught and I'm there and I'm saying, help me, help me. I've been caught. I I didn't know that this sin was going to lead to this, but now my leg is in this trap and, and it's hurting me. Someone help me. And church discipline is not what the first two guys did with the 
um, with the man who was on the road beaten and abused by robbers where they just went around the man trying to get beyond him. No, our job in church discipline is to be that good Samaritan who comes alongside that individual, gets down on his, on his knee, and helps to grab the trap and open it. But here's the thing we've got to be careful with. As we're helping the be- believer who's caught in the trap, what can happen as I open that trap? I can get caught myself, right? And so we need to be careful, the Bible says, that when you're opening the trap of of sin to help that individual out of their mess, be careful. That spring-loaded trap is dangerous. You may find yourself in that trap as well. So do it carefully because you too could fall to it. And so we need to recognize our job in church discipline is not something where we just say, yes, so-and-so needs to be kicked out of a church. It begins far sooner than that when we come alongside those who are caught in sin. Another area that the Scripture talks about, those are in conflict with one another. They're in conflict. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, becomes a manual to church uh, conflict resolution. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I always appreciated that the Bible is really honest And it doesn't just say that, you know, when you're a Christian, you're just going to like everybody. You're going to come in, and I'm your friend, and you're my friend, and they're great, and they're wonderful. We're never going to have issues with one another. No. In fact, some of the heavy hitters of the Scripture, Peter and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, the two women in the um, uh, book of Philippians in the church at Philippi, had quarrels with one another. There was so much of a quarrel in Acts 15 that a whole conference needed to be put together in Jerusalem to deal with the conflict that was taking place. So we need to recognize when Christians get together, there's a real good chance that sparks are going to fly. We're different. We've got different preferences and different understandings. We come from different backgrounds and all of that. We're different generations. And that's at times going to butt heads of even the most godly individuals. And yet what the Scripture says is, there's a way to deal with it. Now sadly, what we will do is when, I need to, I I said a name in the first service, and there was a whole bunch of people that looked at me because their name was what I said. So so, uh, Herbert, okay, I don't know if any Herberts are here, but I hope not. So Herbert has sinned against me greatly. And you know what we do? Instead of following the the prescribed conflict resolution of addressing that issue one-on-one, what I do is the other biblical thing. I gather around a group of people to talk bad about Herbert. Right? And I do this in this way. Let me help you with this. Guys, I have a prayer request. And it's about our brother Herbert. And he is the back end of a mule. So pray for him because he's not sitting. Let me tell you what he's done and how bad he is and, and what a jerk that he is. And we, we sanctify it around this prayer thing. Let me tell you something. The Bible says in Matthew 18, I am to go to Herbert and I'm to say, Herbert, maybe you don't even know it, but you've hurt me. What came out of your mouth cut me deeply. And I love you too much to allow it to go. I I love my Lord too much to allow bitterness and envy and and anger to, to dwell up within me, that root of bitterness to grow in me. And so I love you and I love our Lord. And and brother, I I need some help. You've wronged me. And the Bible says that when that happens, 
we have the great luxury of winning our brother back. We have the great opportunity to, to lead our brothers and sisters back to the Lord. But remember, we are to do this fully recognizing that if Herbert has done something that's offended us, that there's a speck in his eye, I better first ask the question, number one, can love cover this multitude of sins? Number two, is there anybody in my life that maybe I've done the same thing that Herbert did to me that I need to go make right? The Bible says that when we live that way, we should not even worship. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, if you know your brother has something against you, don't go and worship, but leave your gift at the altar. Go make right so that you and your brother can come back. Some of you right now took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way today, and you don't even know that you did it, but it's not because maybe you've done something sinful against God, but you're out of fellowship with someone. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's the person sitting in the other row of pews that you have wronged. God says, go make right first, and then you and I can have fellowship. You see, we can't say we love God and not love our brother. And so we need to be aware of that. So, there are some processes and steps that we need to follow. But before we get there, I did this in the first message. We need to also recognize that discipline involves those who live in contradiction to the word. So why do we discipline people? We discipline believers, professing believers who do not not follow the commands of God. Let me tell you something. A believer who continually chooses not to follow God's commands is a living oxymoron. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus Christ and never choose to follow him. So if we're unwilling to deal with our sin, we deserve discipline. We deserve it when we're spiritually idle. We deserve it when we're divisive. We deserve it when we practice immorality. We deserve it when we are false teachers. We deserve it with any unrepentant sin that continues to grow in our lives. We need our brothers and sisters to come around us and call us out in love and respect. So how do we do it? There's a process and there are steps to follow. That's my fourth point this morning. How do we do it? The Bible prescribes it. First of all, we need to recognize that discipline, first and foremost, is formative. It's formative. And what I mean by that is that it happens in such a way that we as people may not even know it's taking place. Let me help you. Right now, you are being formatively disciplined by sitting and listening to the Word of God. As you open God's Word in a private way, and study God's word for yourself and, and pray. You are forming good godliness, okay, and good habits of holiness in your life. So every time you're opening the word and studying yourself to be approved unto God, you are cultivating godliness, which, which Paul says is of great gain for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now let me help you with that in an illustration. Each and every day, Amanda and I are discipling our boys towards godliness. Hey, do this. Or when you go to school, make sure you treat your teachers with respect. When someone wrongs you, don't seek revenge. Show love. Pray for your enemies. When you cross the street, look both ways. Don't touch the top of the stove. All of these things are formative discipline in the life of a child. So as every ministry that we do in this place whether together publicly or even privately, we are seeking to form godliness in the life of people. But when that doesn't work, 
Or when someone chooses to disobey it, there's corrective discipline that takes place. There's corrective discipline that what it does is it stops and says, wait a minute, you know better, you've been taught differently, and you're choosing to rebel against that. I need to stop you in your tracks. Corrective discipline is that, is that uh, uh, grabbing of the neck of, of your son or daughter and saying, hey, wait a minute, stop. I need to grab your attention because what you're doing is wrong. You need to stop that. And in a church, there are times where we are going to be confronted and we are going to be corrected in the way that we're living. Hey, Tim, what you said to that individual was just plain wrong. you got to fix it. You can't preach all that you're preaching and then go and treat individuals like that. You can't do that. And as a brother and sister in Christ, Tim, we're not going to let you do that. And so there will be times where we will be called to repent not by this still small voice that's in our hearts as the Spirit speaks to us, but we'll be maybe heard from a big loud voice of someone who lives next to us or someone who's in a small group with us or someone within our church. And that's where the consequences begin to be lived out. So how does it take place? Matthew 18 helps us. I'm going to run through these quickly. Number one, it involves private interaction. That is that you, in verse 15, you and their brother or sister who has wronged you, you go and you show them their fault. And again, if they say, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, you've won your brother, it's over. Discipline is over. But let's say they say no. What are you talking about? Who who do you think you are? Then the Bible says in verse 16, you're to take two or three others with you so that they may verify. So it's pairs to verify. So you start with private interaction. That doesn't work. You bring some others with you and what they say is, yeah, Tim, we heard the same thing. And we, we heard it or... Or, uh, or it may mean, maybe they didn't hear the initial thing that, that Tim said. What it will be is, is a person will come and say, Tim, I've brought others because I confronted you about this and you're unwilling to change and they are there to see if I'm really unwilling to do so. And so they verify it. Well, if that, after that I say, well, you know what? I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. You've won your brother. Praise God. Bring them back into fellowship. But what happens if they're like, you know what? Hey, You guys, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm doing fine. I don't need anybody in my business. The Bible says that it may involve a public rebuke. Notice verse 17. It says, if they do not listen to them, then tell it to the church. And so then the the church is involved. And how do we involve the church? Well, we involve the church through our membership. And, And not too long ago, we had to go through this process where we brought up people's names. And we said, you know what? An individual went to talk with them on a couple different occasions and it didn't work. And, and then a couple sets of people went to go and talk with them and it didn't work. And now we're bringing it to the church. And, and we're bringing it to the church, number one, because we want you to be praying for it. Number two, you may have a place in that individual's life where, where God may be able to use you in the days to come to confront that individual in love and truth and to address it. Now, maybe through that process... We win our brother and praise God and they come and we receive them back. But what happens if they say, you know what, I don't want to do. Who do you guys think you are that you could tell me what to do? The scripture says if they don't listen to the church, you treat them like a, a pagan or a, or a tax collector. And what that means is you withdraw your public affirmation of that individual as a believer. And what that may involve in that public rebuke 
is the, is the activity of putting them out. In 1 Corinthians 5, the scripture says that there are times where sin is being done so flamboyantly and with such disregard for the gospel of Jesus Christ that it will be right and proper for a group of Christians to say, you no longer are welcome as you are right now in this place. That you are living like the world, you have no desire to follow the word of God, you have no desire to fall under the authority of other believers in your life, and because of that, the church is of no value to you, so it is unnecessary for you to come. You want to live like the world? Then go live like the world. The Bible says we literally at that moment hand them over to Satan. Well, what does that mean? That's a scary thought. What it is is we hand them over to the world that's being led by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the disobedient. So we say, you know what? You won't listen to God. You won't listen to his people. Maybe you'll listen to the devil. Let the devil have his way with you. And we've done that as well in this place. And it is a heartbreaking thing because we do not do it as a bunch of pious policemen, but broken-hearted family members recognizing that at some point we have to draw a line in the sand of an individual who professes to be a believer who is living an absolutely unholy life. So, let's bring this all together. There's one final thought that I want to make sure that we here this morning, and it's in that long phrase that's there. When we talk about this healthy mark of church discipline, Village Bible Church seeks to be a place of grace. Let's stop there for a moment. A place of grace. What, what does that mean? What it means is that you and I recognize that we too are all sinners. And so when we are going to deal with the sin of another, we better make sure that our lives are right before we do that. You see, in Matthew chapter 18, if we only go to verse 20 and we say that's church discipline, we've got to do that, and don't continue to read. Notice in verse 21, if you're in that passage of Scripture right now, notice my heading says that the next part of the Scripture is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so what we need to recognize is when we do church discipline, it's got to be grace-filled. It's got to be full of mercy and love, and, and it means doing the hard things, but recognizing that you and I, were it not for the grace of God, would be there as well. And we've got to recognize that, and we've got to know that. And so we're a place of grace, and we're all sinners, but where we lovingly pursue one another for reconciliation and restoration as our goal. Why is that our goal? Because we serve a Savior who said that his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's our job, is to go after those. At times to leave the 99 and go after the one who has wandered away. And and the job of the elders is to help keep watch over the flock and and to help try to bring that back. And we don't do so yelling and screaming and and taking the whip and saying, you better get back here. What's the sheep going to do? It's going to keep running, right? But we lovingly, come on back. You've lost your way. Come on back. You, You found yourself in sin. That's all right. There's forgiveness under the cross of Jesus Christ. Come on back before it's too late. And the reason why we do it is that we might live holy lives to the glory of God. God demands holiness in his church. And if we're not maintaining that through church discipline, then we have ceased to do what God says healthy churches should do. So we do it knowing we're sinners, knowing that God has extended grace to us. We extend grace to others, but we also understand that that grace sometimes means doing the difficult things 
of disciplining one another in the Lord. Hard truths, but healthy churches do the hard things and they do them well. And I pray through teaching like this and through the example of your leadership in situations like this, that we will do it well. Right now, it is no secret, five individuals in our church right now are under church discipline. We practice this. And I will say, I believe we do a really good job with it because we are not because it's us, but because we have taken seriously the commands of the Lord and you as a congregation have done well in helping one another to do this. And I can assure you that the five individuals that we have put under church discipline would say that they have been loved, they have been cared for, they have been ministered to, though they may not see eye to eye with us right now, that they see why we're doing it with the utmost care. And I hope that that will continue in the days to come. So let's pray. Father God, tough words to deal with this morning. And Lord, we do not desire to be a group of, of holy rollers that tell others what to do. We desire to be followers of yours first and foremost. So a message on church discipline, Lord, should remind us that we have our own work to do, that we have walked away from the truth, that we have been casual in your commands. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be a warning for all of us, including myself, that you are an all-consuming fire and that you demand holiness from your people. And Lord, I pray that we would live those upright and holy lives. That we would do the due diligence of, of judging ourselves as we heard about around the communion table, examining our own hearts. Doing it before someone else has to do it, Lord. Doing it before you have to for, force the hand of the church to do that. Lord, that we would seek to live righteous lives. But Lord, I pray for for those that at times, Lord, each and every one of us will be confronted, Lord, that we'll respond in love, that we'll respond with eagerness to seek to right our wrongs, that when we are the ones who go and, and, and show someone their sin, that we would do so remembering we too are sinners in need of grace. Lord, grace and love and mercy are needed in this, but Lord, they can never trump the balance of truth. And so, Lord, I pray that we would stand for your truth. Lord, I pray that we would do so so that you might be brought glory in this place and that the testimony of this place will be known throughout the world. So Lord, guide us in it. Lord, I pray for the individuals who find themselves now under church discipline. Lord, I pray that they would repent, that they would see the error of their ways, that they would recognize that they can deceive themselves and have deceived themselves in thinking that they can live ways that are opposite of your ways and still call themselves children of God. Lord, that they would humble themselves today, bow the knee to Jesus, make right with you and make right with others so that we can have the joy of the father in the story of the prodigal son who from far off runs and embraces the one who was lost and now is found. Oh Lord, we need your guidance in this that we may do it well. So now, Lord, we are dismissed into this world, and I pray that we would take what we've heard today, apply it to our lives, live differently as a result of it. Lord, thank you for our opportunity to worship you in song and in prayer and around your table and now through your word. And send us forth now to worship in fellowship with one another so that we may know what it means to be followers of yours. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.